This week, we'll talk about business skills for data professionals. And we have a special guest today, Boris. Loris is the CEO and founder of Discovering Data, where he's on the mission to build a bridge between business leaders and data leaders. Loris hosts the Discovering Data podcast, a show for business leaders for data professionals who want to turn data into outcomes. Welcome, Loris. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's crazy to be on the other side. You know, I watched the show uh, recently as a listener and every time you're invited, there's this weird like inception thing. Like it's, you don't know whether <laughs> what's actually happening. So it's super keen to be here. So thank you. Yeah, it's always interesting experience to be on the other side. So, like not to host, but to be a guest. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go into our main topic of business skills for data professionals. Let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure. In a way, very typical for data people. I started out with a background in engineering and then I got passionate about physics and I thought for a moment I would become one day a researcher, a professor in quantum physics. Then I got to understand how academia works and I realized that wasn't quite what I wanted. And the first sort of job that I landed after my PhD in quantum physics was uh, uh, data science, which aligned really well uh, with a lot of the work that I've done in engineering as well. So my background is information engineering. So it's a lot about entropy, mutual information, statistics, a lot of statistics. And data science, as we know, is founded really on statistics. And so, yeah. I managed to convince someone that I uh, could have done the job and they hired me and I was the first data hire in that company, a startup in marketing. So very, um, as you can That's imagine. Amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so somebody without experience is a first hire in data science. That's a uh, success, right? Exactly. It's typical 2018, right? Like that was the thing at the time. If you didn't have a data scientist, you were, you were behind, you know, that's, that was the business perception. And so the chief executive said, okay, we need to hire a data scientist and started asking around everybody. Do you know a good data scientist? And a friend of mine said, well, I know someone that is pretty smart. And so that I had that classic conversation, uh, sitting at a table across the other side, this chief technical and chief executive. And they were like, okay, so we have a bold strategy and lots and lots of complex business questions to answer. Now you clearly, you're clearly smart. You've done a PhD in physics, so you work it out. This is your desk, here's your MacBook Pro. Yeah, I'll see you and stand up tomorrow. <laughs> That's the entire interview process or they actually ask some stuff. That was my day one. Uh, yeah, the interview was actually very interesting. We can talk about the interview, but the day one was that. And day two, the CTO looked at me from across the room during stand up and asked me, okay, so when is the project gonna get done? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> things are fast here. So that was a bit of a shock coming from uh, from academia, but that's where I learned the ropes. And um, I ended up doing a lot of data management and data engineering just to get the data that I needed and just to avoid using Excel, because at the time there was a very uh, compelling business need. They wanted to integrate, create some models and integrate it into the app. So. It was exciting. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, we get to see the whole workflow from the source data all the way to the application and the user and get some feedback and iterate. Uh, it took us nine months to deploy the first model into production, which for me was forever. 
at the time. And then I learned how hard it, it was for data scientists to put anything into production at that time. So I felt, wow, maybe I was actually lucky. Maybe we met. it was actually an achievement to deploy a model in real life. What was actually the, the app was doing and what was the model? Oh, the app was just recommending. So Autopilot had a, it's a SaaS business. Now they rebranded, so you wouldn't find it on LinkedIn. But what they were doing is marketing automation. So you could create journeys and tag people and sort of make the whole workflow for uh, someone in marketing a lot easier and more intuitive. The platform was incredibly flexible. Like we had this drag and drop functionality with blocks that were actions and triggers, sort of similar to ConvertKit for those that have an experience with that software, but way more powerful. Yeah, you could do literally everything and it would natively integrate with everything else. And <laughs> they had uh, a lot of engineers. I think more than 30% of the engineering team was focused on integration. So uh, the product was really, really cool. And my job was to make the dashboard and the reporting way more actionable because the problem was information overwhelm. You will log in and you will find logs, real-time information on what was happening across all your campaigns and across all your contacts and leads. But it was very hard to focus the attention on, okay, here's what you can do right now to improve that campaign. So it was reporting and sort of basic descriptive work. And there was also some diagnostic work on top. And the idea then was to leverage the, um, the human intellect to cover the last part, which was prediction and prescription. So a bit of anomaly detection stuff, mm -hmm. very simple from an algorithmic standpoint, but very uh, in convoluted from a, an architectural standpoint. Which is interesting. So your background was engineering and physics, yet the work, the job, the app that uh, you worked on was in marketing. Yeah. Like two different worlds. So how did you actually convince them to hire you? Was it enough to say like, hey, I know physics, so I'm smart? Or that wasn't enough? Well, they were a tech startup, right? So very technical people. And it was very easy to convince them, to be honest. Like it was one of the easiest interview processes. Uh -huh. we, we started talking and I described some of the projects that I worked on. Because in academia, in the context of university, I actually done some really interesting work that never saw the light of, you know, the wider community. It was stuck in, published a paper, ended up on the IEEE, and that was it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if, if you unpack that, that was a work on machine, on uh, reinforcement learning. I was looking at non-polynomial uh, hard problems for those in the audience that love mathematics, which I think most of them. And I used reinforcement learning to create basically a game where a bunch of actors would take actions and their actions would compete and cause other actors to feel the effects of these actions until the network eventually converged to a non-optimal but very close to optimal solution in like record time in like 30 or 40 iterations compared to being an intractable problem if you wanted to to approach it uh, exhaustively so that was cool and then i just happened to meet this person that wanted to build a laser lab in quantum physics and so i switched from um, whatever i was doing when i saw lasers you know, shiny things I couldn't resist. And I was like, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah, so previously in academia, your work was uh, publishing papers on IEEE and after you publish, the work is done. But now you join a company, which is a completely yeah. different domain, marketing. And then to deploy something, it took nine months, which is was very unusual for you, right? 
Yeah, the basics of the model were ready to be tested on a you know larger sample than what I had available and do some basic A-B testing after a month from when I started because I had that good friend of mine in engineering. And so I said, hey, I need some data. <laughs> so beer is on me, lunch is on me, help me out. And so he did, he did help me out and he gave me a data set and I built the initial models off of that. The, inter- the actual integration live, that was a beautiful exercise of like learning how DevOps works and how the, the world of software development really works, which is very different from statistics and, and data science as we know. So yeah, that was, you know, exposure end to end from the user needs to the engineer that needs to deploy a server in AWS to make that thing happen. And then eventually that engineer was too busy. So I took over that part. And so I became very quickly more of a data engineer than a data scientist. And uh, yeah, so luckily I knew the basics of coding. So I managed to survive, but, and eventually we, we published that stuff in, in, in production, which was great. And I moved more. And then I de- started developing this passion around like aligning people on concepts and trying to really understand what they're trying to achieve and map those requirements into data requirements. I found that part extremely refreshing and energizing. So I focused on that and that was a lot of fun. And it was a hint to that. What do you actually mean by that? Aligning people on concepts and like this entire thing, maybe we can unpack it a little bit. Yeah, sure. It's also one of the, our points in our outline for the talk today, data that makes sense, context, semantics, and meaning. I guess I found the first hints that this was a problem. We're having a conversation during, uh, post the hackathon. We did a hackathon one day. It was, it was fun. You know, everybody was free to spend one day solving a business problem they were in love with. And I found myself uh, contributing to a customer success problem. And yeah, we, so we do that. And at the end of the day, we're drinking beers. <laughs> and this friend of mine says something that completely shocks me. I remember essentially freezing and looking at her, staring at her in the eyes. And I couldn't believe what I heard. I was like, is this what you mean? Or is that what you mean? And I realized that in that moment that we had two completely different understandings of what we did for eight hours together. She built a picture in her head that was different from mine. And they were both very valid pictures, just not the same picture. (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, interesting. So in how many ways we can have different views of the world, even if we use the same words, the concepts that we associate with those words can be different if our backgrounds and our priorities are different. And she was in customer success. I was more in data science and data engineering. So different views of the world. Customer success is um, like, it's sort of like customer support or what's, what is customer success? No, success was more focused on sort of the 5% uh, customers by revenue and try to get them to grow even more. Like account management, right? Yeah, but more focused on adoption and proficiency of the product. Mm-hmm. Because even the big ones were actually not using the product that were just scratching the surface of what the functionalities that we had available to them. So the, my work there was to analyze the usage of the product. So I was scanning the metadata, the logs that came from the Elasticsearch background that we had and try to find 
describe usage. So, but before I could even describe usage, I had to describe what good usage meant. And so we ended up doing the session on whiteboarding. What is success for the product? What, what are the key metrics? Is it the number of elements they use? Is it the complexity of the graph that they built? Is it the number of tags or advanced features? Is it the ability to export that information with other? And so integration and ecosystem building, because that potentially could have been a lead indicator for stickiness and how, and, and you could then argue that if people use the product and it's embedded, they use a lot of their integrations, they're less likely to churn because, you know, it's part of the ecosystem It's going to cost them time and energy to kill it. And so that would tie in with the lifetime value of the customer and all the business metrics that the business was following. So context is semantics and meaning. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. You said something that is quite interesting and I wanted to ask you about that. So you, you said that it's a lead indicator of stickiness. So what is a lead mm -hmm. indicator and what is stickiness? Yeah, good point. So stickiness uh, is, uh, is not the stuff you find on scotch tape. It's uh, more, I think in the context of a SaaS is the probability of churning, which means essentially canceling the account and picking a competitor. Just like the opposite of churning. The opposite of churning, yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you have high stickiness, people tend to um, keep using the product. And so their lifetime value uh, increases. Mm -hmm. And lead indicator, this is like some actions or some numbers, a figure that tells you that they're about to leave or they are more likely to continue using the product, right? Yeah, that's right. So I don't know how many people have ever seen in the audience a causal graph, but if you think about causality and a causal graph, like connection of nodes with arrows and the arrows typically go one way only, could be that way or this way, but a one way only. And a causal graph sort of tells you, okay, if this happens, then this happens and then that happens. So mm -hmm. it's about establishing a direction on that arrow. Uh, lead indicator is sort of an event or some conditions that are very likely to lead to a transition to the next stage. And so in that case it was churn, but it could be anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For example, in my relationship with my wife, I know that my ability to keep a strong separation between my professional work and my homework is a lead indicator for how well we go along together and, and, and how strong and healthy our marriage is. <laughs> I hope that answers. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> I interrupted <laughs> you. Sorry. So you were going to say something about uh, context, semantic, and meaning, I guess. Yeah, I learned over time that this applies a lot more with cross-functional teams and larger organizations than does on startups. The fundamental mechanics of it are just cognitive biases and just the cognitive structure, the way that we process information as humans, which is something that's always fascinated me. I never had the opportunity to dive deeper into the topic, but you know, we see a lot that the data information knowledge wisdom pyramid, which is one way of understanding the different levels in, in data. But I recently um, learned to extend that pyramid. And I'm in two interviews in particular, one with Jessica Talisman on my podcast, the podcast title a true data mesh, so semantics, ontologies, and then a true data mesh. And the other one with uh, Ron Edelman. Ron has done a lot of work at the intersection of uh, machines and humans. So he loves that machine-human interface. 
And it's just that multidisciplinary sort of stuff that really gets me out of bed in the morning, you know, studying cognition, psychology, and how do we make sense of the world, essentially. And it's so messy because everybody has a different way of processing information and building pictures of what reality is. And so how do you, how do you align people on the same understanding, you know, on, in, on the same thing? So very practically, an example is the definition of customer. It's the most used in the data management space. You know, you ask someone in sales and have one in conceptual understanding of what a customer is. You ask a marketing and they have a different one. And th the problem is that these and different understandings then reflect in the data and how people use the data to do what they do. And so as data scientists and data analysts, if we want to support the business to achieve the targets they set up as part of this strategy, we need to understand that different people might have different understandings of what we see as one metric, you know, customer, how hard can it possibly be? <laughs> there's, there's one example from Scott Taylor. You know, he tells me the story of the hospital with 170 definitions of what a patient is. And that's, it's like, how can you possibly have 170 definitions of what a patient is? How did they even count this? Well, well at some point, just things broke and someone suffered, you know, potentially physical suffering, not just psychological suffering. And uh, it must have gotten to a stage where they engaged an external firm to do some mm -hmm. audits and they looked into the databases and they counted 170 definitions. It doesn't surprise me. So how do we, how do we make, how do we use data to actually have an impact on the organization when we know that our cognition, the, the very system we use to make sense of the world is so unpredictable and so random and so different. And that fascinates me. I guess another good example would be definition of churn, right? So it could be, you can define churn or stickiness in so many ways. And then everything you do when you need to analyze data on churn depends on this de definition, right? And if you use a different definition, then your analysis will be different. Yeah. And in this one, I think uh, this could be actually a fantastic introduction to the next point that we have in our outline, which is about, or maybe the last one, which is there's one point that I wrote around building better models by building relationships and earning trust, which it connects really, really well with communication and storytelling. Something that I am, and here I'm really curious to hear from the audience. I didn't even conceive at the beginning of my career. So for me, marketing was sort of the enemy. Coming from physics, right? From doing the reinforcement learning. Yeah, from physics, man. So this is like science and hard facts and numbers. Everything has a standard deviation. Everything has a mean. Everything has a model that can describe it. And if you don't have a model, I can sample it and I can estimate the model. You know, this theory and books written many decades ago on that. And to me, that was solid, you know, verifiable, reproducible thinking. With marketing, I always saw it as magic and I also associated persuasion as something very bad. You know, you don't want to be the one that persuades people because it <laughs> sounds like manipulating them. It sounds like it getting does, in yeah. their heads, right? Yeah. So you want to stick to the facts. You want to show them the numbers. And I changed my mind big time on that topic. In fact, I think like as data professionals, we don't do that nearly enough. And if you think about it, we're competing for the same amount of funding there's only so much money that the organization has to invest in the projects, right? And 
we are competing against each other. You know, the sales folks, the marketing folks, they know how to tell a story. They know how to be memorable. They leverage the way that our brain works, the way that we process information, not necessarily to lead the organization in the wrong way, just to have that edge, just to be remembered, really. And in data, we just blatter a lot about databases and models, and we forget that we're talking to people that don't know what we're talking about. They really don't. They really don't know what we're talking about, with some exceptions. I mean, if you work in a, think about data maturity scales, zero to five, zero being with sole paper, we barely use a, a laptop and 0.5 being the majority of the organizations <laughs> where they, oh, well, maybe not, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe I think Doug Laney put it around two, being like 45% of the organizations that they uh, used for the statistics back when he was a uh, gardener were on between two and three in the data maturity space. And I think two is when you do have digital systems, but you don't really have a strategy. We don't, you don't really use data. You talk about data, but data is in Excel in a spreadsheet that has no heading, no metadata, and and the title is underscore V1, underscore final, final. That's kind of level two, <laughs> level two, so it's still pretty bad. Level three is when you start having a bit of a function, you have a data team, maybe an analyst or two, and four is when you start doing more predictive, and five is the prescriptive, but it's really embedded within the strategy of the organization. Most organizations don't really do that sort of stuff and they don't have that data literacy high enough so that the business can understand what the heck are we talking about so how can we make business understand what we talk about what can we learn from marketing to actually do that yes and this has been the focus for me for the last year to be honest and it's going to keep continuing being the focus in the next two or three years I think the key is to unlearn some of the concepts and the beliefs that we built up over time, especially for those that have resonated with the story that I shared and the way that I felt about marketing and learn to see it in a different light as a tool, like any tool. We know that if we want to do classification, we can you know, hop on scikit-learn and we have a whole plethora of systems that allow us to do classification. Just in the same way, if we want to have an impact in the organization, we need to use those tools. And a tool is a tool, right? It's not bad, it's not evil, it's not good by itself, it's just a tool. It's how we use it that gives that tool, yeah, the adjective. Is it good, is it bad? Are you doing ethically? Are you doing it in the wrong way? But we can't just say, hey, because there are examples of people that are manipulating other people with marketing slogans, then I want to be a purist and I'm going to just you know, step back, walk away, don't even get my hands dirty. I think that was the mindset that I had to overcome and uh, learn how to be like them, but retaining my intentions. My intentions as a data professional is to have an impact, to be honest. I, I hate the idea of working on things um, and just Zero adoption is is my biggest nightmare when I do any data work. It just doesn't feel good for me. Mm -hmm. How does somebody coming from this physics background, from this mathematical background, to work on marketing? So how do you unlearn these things? How do you start building trust with business people? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I think it starts with active listening. But before you can listen, you have to learn to be comfortable with not knowing what the hell people are talking about. 
and it's incredibly frustrating. I, uh, I have fresh memories because I just started a new position um, two months ago. I'm what's called now an industrial engineer, but essentially I'm, I'm an analyst and I'm trying to help the business reduce costs, increase margins and uh, reduce waste, which is what data people do. That any, any business wants to do one of those things, if not all of them at the same time. And there's so much domain knowledge when you join a new company, it's overwhelming. I mean, I don't know, especially we, we live in a, in a moment of volatility. So I'm sure that a lot of the listeners have uh, fresh memories as well of what it's like to start a new job in a new organization. And it's, it's awful. Like we do it because we have to do it and we can't wait to sort of go past that first steepest part of the learning curve so that now we are comfortable. We know where we are in the organization. We know who our stakeholders are. Stakeholder mapping is one of the first things you do in any new position. And sort of that gives us reference points. We build a almost a map of what we're doing, why we're doing it, who are the people that we need to please, who are those we need to be careful. It's basic survival, if you think about it. And as a data professional, if you want to really have an impact, you have to get close to the business. The business meaning like anyone in the organization that is trying to achieve something tangible and they are struggling to do it or they have difficulties and they need help. So first you need to know who they are, what the problems are, whether the problems are worth your time. And so there's a whole prioritization of uh, projects you can work on because you're only one, right? As an individual contributor, at least. If you're leading a team, it's different, but the same principles apply. You still have to prioritize. And so that requires business literacy. That requires mambo jumbo, <laughs> you know, going to meetings where people talk about stuff that, to be honest, we're not ready for. Most of most data professionals don't come from a business school. They don't have an MBA. They've studied technical stuff, the engineers, the developers. I don't know anyone who actually went to MBA. Yeah. Like from data. <laughs> because we don't need it, right? Like to get hired, you need to demonstrate that you have a, a prolific GitHub account and you are active on Kaggle. You don't need to demonstrate that you know business, but to have an impact after you're hired, you need to know how a business operates. You mm -hmm. need to know how to speak that language. I think I wasn't completely correct when saying I don't know anyone. It occurred to me that but usually the people who, I don't know, studied MBA, studied business, they don't start as junior data scientists, right? Yeah. They start as like, I don't know, head of product or head of data, right? Well, yeah. Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. A head of data and data lead, they're typically really technical positions. So, I mean, it depends who, yeah, yeah. where you are. Well, I guess. I mean, if you start with head of product, right? So this is a good place to, or maybe a product manager, right? And then you yeah. become head of product, right? And then you get into data because you work with analysts. So eventually you might yeah. become head of data. And in many organizations, actually head of data or I don't know, director of data reports to the product function, to the CPO or whatever, which is, I guess, fine. But uh, most of us, we study engineering, right? We study software, computer science, I don't know, economics, not business development. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when we see that the business 
talks about targets on specific values that they need to increase. They talk about penetration, they talk about differentiation and humanization of the product. They talk about education that they are actively doing to turn leads. They're not even aware that they have a problem and walk them through the five stages from unaware to super fan. They talk about cost of acquisition for marketing. They talk about uh, conversion rates for a campaign. Every domain within the business has a language that is different from the other. And if you change industry, the language keeps changing. And plus, in addition to all of that, there is the lingo that is actually spoken by the people on the job, which may be filled with acronyms and inside jokes and the whole cut. And so you kind of have to become one of them if you want to win their trust, make them understand that you are there to try and help, that you by no means have all the answers because these people maybe are there, have been there for like five, seven, 10, in the case of the company I'm in, 20, 25 years. Like I have four key stakeholders and their average time that they've been employed in the same organization is 20 years, right? So I walk in as the data person and I'm like, I have zero domain knowledge. I need to learn from you, demonstrate that I'm genuinely curious. I actually want to learn what it's like to be you at work, what keeps you busy, what worries you, what are your aspirations? What do you want to achieve personally as a team and for the business? And hopefully those three are aligned, but <laughs> in some cases they're not. And only once you have that kind of a welcome, then you see that people open up and they come to you with ideas. So you don't have to chase for case studies. You don't have to do the research. The research is done by establishing those relationships first. Those are the foundations of, mm -hmm. I think, successful data professionals. And I don't see a lot of that. How do you actually do this? So you join a new company, right? And then you said the first thing you do, or one of the first things, is you do this stakeholder mapping, right? For yeah. each stakeholder, you try to understand what they do, why they do this, and you also want to prioritize, right? Understand who is more important. Like you said, who you need to please and who you need to stay away from, right? So how do you do this? How does it work? So you, you have to know one thing about me, and that's, I have a terrible memory. So <laughs> for a long time, one of the biggest challenges I had when it comes to like knowing people, and it's remembering their names. I'm incredibly bad with names, like to a point that is almost ridiculous, right? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, I, sometimes I avoid people because they recognize me, they call me by name and I, for the love of God, I don't remember how their name and it feels so bad. So I kind of try to avoid it and I've done, I'm I've, late. I've been stuck in that for years, trust me. And so one day I learned about Notion. Uh, now there's many systems, well, okay, but Notion was one of the first. And when I learned it was the only one, I was like, oh, maybe I can build a system where every time I meet someone, I can, Google them, everybody has LinkedIn, get a copy of their photo, attach it to the system and build a database of people. I started out actually- Like CRM, right? Kind of a CRM. But for colleagues. For colleagues, yes. That, that sounds very creepy. <laughs> I know it's creepy and it sounds really, really bad, but it helped me enormously. So if you ask the how, like tactically, practically, how do I do? How do I solve the biggest barrier to building relationships is remembering people's name, what they do, what they care about. 
So I don't, obviously I don't take notes as, you know, meet someone over coffee, you know, like, okay, let me take notes about you. No, we're humans, normal relationships. But as soon as that interaction ends, I know that I have to do it. I have to collect that information, that knowledge and resurface it whenever I need it. Otherwise it's lost. Hmm. (laughs) And that helps a lot because people, we're humans, right? We want to feel acknowledged, recognized, respected, and we want to feel that sense of belonging and connection. And it's not manipulation, it's simply just normal people are born with a solid memory. My memory is crap, so I need a database. Second brain, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is your stakeholder mapping or this is like stakeholder relationship management system? Uh, no, this is just awareness of who is who mm-hmm. and what the names are. So that's then, like uh, the first the, step, right? The first step, yeah. This is just overcoming my, my terrible memory. Then step two is, is to attend business meetings. And there's many in any organization, like from startups to enterprises. We, people talk business every day, all day, many times a day. Some of those meetings are more engaging, some are boring, but you'll never know which ones are valuable until you sample them. So I know it's absolutely crazy, something you would never do. You join and this data in your title, what do you do? You just go around and get random invitations to Teams or to, to Slack and Google Meets to sit there. It sounds like there is no meaning whatsoever. The first 10 meetings you go, it's just a different language. It's like when you go and visit a different country where they speak a different language. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no way I can understand the conversation. And that's where a lot of people quit. You know, they go like, ah, man, it's, I can learn. It's so much better. It gives me good vibes. I can build models. You know, <laughs> I don't need that. This is bad for me, right? And that's where I think we need to go against our instincts because the instinct tells you play safe, stay within the comfort zone and just get attached to those pleasant sensations that arise. When you know that you're on top of your work, you know, you know what you're doing, right? Nobody wants to feel like you're lost. But if you stick long enough, then those words start making sense. And now you start seeing patterns and connections. Repeat, rinse, repeat. <laughs> you do it over and over and over. And after sooner than you think, actually, within less than three months, I guarantee you that you, you start seeing things from a completely different perspective. And now those people recognize you, you build a habit of attending those meetings, and maybe you didn't ask a single question for a couple of months. Now the first question comes in to mind. You'll ask it maybe privately because nobody wants to ask a stupid question in front of like 40 people that may one day be you know, your, your key stakeholders. So at the beginning, you play safe and then you build some confidence. And once you know what you know, you kind of have a feeling for what you don't know then you, maybe you dare and ask one question and challenge what someone said. And I mean, it's just a wonderful thing because most people are actually open to get fresh eyes, perspectives on problems. And you have it. And, and that's the thing that we don't see. The value of someone that attends a meeting from a completely different domain or you know, department is that you don't have priors. Your prior is a uniform distribution to speak the language of the audience, right? You don't, you know, don't have biases. You haven't done the shaping yet. Everything is equally important and potentially interesting or potentially not just <laughs> in the same way. And that's a superpower. And so if you can sell that, 
people recognize it and they open up and they talk to you and now you have friends you have new connections <laughs> do you have a system for that like you have this database with people to remember their names do you also have a system for taking notes after these business meetings so then you remember yeah. you can map concepts you can understand who cares about which topic like what is important for people yeah so i i come from so it's been working on discovering data for two years now and the whole system is built in notion so i knew the software really well but i found that for the first four weeks i couldn't even possibly think about it because you that's just all pure overwhelm there's so much information coming to you that i think the only thing you need to do is get some just chill do some yoga uh long showers sleep because there's a lot going on but after week four you start seeing some patterns and you're like okay Now I kind of know what the business drivers are. Uh, we want to do X, we want to do Y. You know, the net sales value has to be above that number. The margins on our products has to have to be above then that figure. Cool. So now what are the key activities that I'm going to focus on to try and sustain and support that business strategy? And the, your line managers know that, right? Because if you have a good line manager, even an average one, if it's been in the business longer than a year, they surely know what are the key activities that are more likely to support that, that strategy. And so you, you start from those priors. You don't have to invent anything. They will tell you, okay, very two low hanging fruits are one and two. So we're going to start from those nice and simple. Mm -hmm. And so I built the system literally based on those two first key activities. I try to map my actions and map them to the activities. I have notes. Notion has things like templates. Um, so every time I have a meeting, um, I have button. That button creates a very simple, very bare bones template with, you know, who am I meeting with? The date is automatically captured, the title of the meeting mm -hmm. and, and tags that tell you which key activity that those notes may one day support. And each key activity is a page, you open it and you have all the notes that refer to that key activity. It's just, you know, but you could do it on a notebook. Mm -hmm pen and paper as well. I just use Notion because it's easier. Just wondering, do you use your private Notion account for that? Or like the, you use Notion at work to like its company's account? I'm just wondering, the, the reason I, I'm asking this is because at my work, we don't use Notion, right? So there is a different systems, confluence. Like some people hate it, some people love it, love it yeah. but this is what we use. And I'm wondering if I want to implement this, Should I just use my Notion account or maybe I should use whatever company has? It's a wonderful question. I started out creating an account specific for work and then I realized that Notion is literally my second brain. So mm -hmm. my ideas, my knowledge, the things that I develop are all there. So it makes sense to continue doing that. In saying that it could be tricky depending on, so, oh no, I don't want to offer legal advice, but do read your contract and the intellectual property clauses of that contract because you might be in breach. So the way that I resolved it is by creating different access roles and just segregating. I have databases that are within that the same workspace, but that's specific for so that there's no accidental sharing with other collaborators for my business and stuff like that. Just something to be careful. But okay. Yeah, we talked about like prioritizing. Prioritizing is a big one and uh -huh. The question that's interesting to me is once you reach a steady state and you start being productive, you're part of the business, you attend meetings, now you are independent, right? You can decide and propose even 
a use case or a project to the business. How do you prioritize those use cases? And that's where I think you turn from, a, you really make the transition from onboarding to leading your function or being on top of the work that you do. Yeah, I'm curious to hear from the audience if anyone has a go-to framework to prioritize. What do you focus on? How do you make that call? Is it dollar value impact? Is it impact on people and how they work? Is it uh, long-term thinking stuff like data management, cleaning data? Is it transitioning to a data warehouse? Yeah. So the way I do it may be not the most scientific way, but just by talking to people and understanding what they care about, like what are their goals, what are the goals of their department, and they say, okay, this, this, and this is important to me. And if I talk to multiple people and multiple people say that this item is important to them, then this means that this thing, this piece of work will make more people happy, right? It will contribute to whatever they are doing. And this is pretty simple, right? So you don't uh, think about like money, which you probably should at the end, or I don't know, some other impact, but like how many stakeholders this thing can make happy. Yeah, it's a fantastic way. Which I guess is a valid way of prioritizing too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, it makes me think of network and social media, right? That when you find the nexus of a graph, it's a node that is highly connected. In this case, the graph is, the nodes are data projects and the edges are how many people that data product essentially can touch. And yeah, the difference is that those products don't exist yet. They're just in our heads, in our imagination. So that the job is to really understand where the business is going, find those opportunities. And, and it's like marketing, you know, when I title a podcast these days, I come up with like five or six different options for a title and I pick one. The other five or six are, are gone forever, right? And that's where agility really comes in, you know, that it's not because, you know, we just learn about a particular algorithm and we find an opportunity to use it. A lot of people do that. To be honest, I've seen it over and over. We are curriculum-driven development is a thing. People want to get better specific things. They know that the average tenure in the industry is low. So I met people that were like, look, I'm just being realistic here. I'm not going to be in the job longer than a year and a half. And so I'm just taking every opportunity I can to work on the stuff that I think is hot or is going to be hot or there's a big market for it. And then jump ship and negotiate a bigger salary. That is one way of approaching the problem, right? I don't think that way. And so the community that I'm trying to build a discovering uh, data, my, my podcast is of, for people like that, for people that, of course, I, I have a mortgage to pay. Of course, I want to negotiate a bigger salary. But what gets me out of bed in the morning is to see that I do work and that work has an impact on real people. And I can put a dollar value figure on that. And look, I don't know if it's because it's nice to feel that someone comes in and say, hey, Laura, it's good work. I don't know if it's fine. maybe I'm addicted to that feeling. Maybe I'm addicted to the brainstorming and the learnings. We all are. I don't know. That's very human. Yeah. Right? To get addicted to good things when people say good things about you. Yeah, it's just nice. It makes you feel that you're consequential. You know, that is, you're not just doing stuff for the sake of crunching numbers. You are actually having an impact on someone or, or some teams or maybe a whole domain in the organization. That makes me feel so much better. Yeah, yeah, I just uh, noticed that there is a comment from Alejandro that I wanted to acknowledge and read. So he's uh, writing that I have an MBA and precisely, so we talked about people with business background, right, starting in data. 
and he restarted from an individual contributor position again and this shift is not easy i'm still figuring out how to profit from that generalist business knowledge so this is uh this is quite interesting and i wanted to ask you from i think most of the listeners are not coming from mba but coming from more like quantitative background how yep. do we get this business knowledge how do we start supporting business strategy because one of the things we wanted to talk about is like how can i sit with people who are making important decisions strategic decisions and how can i speak the same language so we already talked about this stakeholder mapping understanding what they care about prioritizing things and then speaking the same language with them but yep. then what's next like how can i actually contribute my data knowledge to these people how can i support these business decisions how can i support business strategy so i'm going to give you an answer that is kind of intuitive the answer is that part is actually the easiest okay but and this is a huge but it requires flexibility in the way we manage our identity you know as data professionals we identify ourselves with the depth and breadth of our technical knowledge it's great but it's also a barrier so the biggest transformation for me is to rethink who you are right and decouple the identity your identity as a professional from the tools and the technologies you use the reality is the 80/20 rule applies in anything the pareto principle and applies to data projects as well so the 20% you can do that gets 80% of the value most of the time for new case studies things that are experimental is excel and yet we see on linkedin literally wars between people that sustain that excel is bad and people that sustain excel is good and i've been a victim of that you know i i took very sharp stances on that position and i said from a data management perspective excel is the enemy is the reason why data is crap yes there's truth in that but it's not one or the other yeah that, that's definitely true <laughs> that's true right that's true but that doesn't mean that we need to go sort of ban it and go like i'm mm -hmm. never touch excel again give me a python client or i'm out of here because that blocks us from having those conversations but you can do a lot of nice things quickly with excel without you know even starting your jupyter notebook like you just open the csv file with excel and then you play with the data pivot chart a pivot table it, to be honest it's even better than than jupiter i mean the how fast it is and how easily you can share it because we don't think about that right but the other side we're not dealing with monkeys we're dealing with people that have brains they want to understand what's happening and they even want to feel good about it that collaboration that they just established so that it was an experiment to see if it's worthwhile considering you as an ally as a partner to what they're trying to achieve that's an experiment when you start and you have to prove that it's worth it and what we don't think about is we need to also worry about how these people feel if i come to you with my jupyter notebook and i showcase all my explorative data analysis and that package that does all those cool graphics yeah maybe there is a wow moment but then the next thought most of the time is oh geez you know he's a smart that's a big brain and i'm behind and now i don't even know how to launch a bloody jupiter notebook i don't even know what it is and now all that work is inside your head as a data professional instead of 
initiating a conversation, it becomes a monologue. And that's the problem. It kills the conversation. And we want those conversations. The more conversations we have, the better we understand the domain and the higher is going to be the impact of the models that eventually we'll touch Python, we'll get there. We'll do predictive and prescriptive, but first we need to do description and we need to do diagnostic. We need to be able to answer the question, why? That is the most burning question for most businesses. People don't know why things happen. And yeah, Excel is not the only tool. You can get definitely to the description stage and maybe with some, you know, using your brain and your domain knowledge, you might even be able to do diagnostic without even touching machine learning. But are you going to be okay with that? And that's why I say that it's going to be a clash, an identity clash. We need to let go of the fact that you're cool if you use machine learning, you're boring if you use Excel. That is nonsense. That is completely missing the point. The point for us is to support the business. If the business needs Excel in that moment, we need to be okay. We need to step up, like grow up essentially and go like, okay, this is the tool doesn't identify me. I use whatever it takes to serve the business. And are you ready to do that? You know, that's the question. Not everybody is. Yeah, but we have a few questions and one interesting one from Rafael is your sound is very good. How, how to learn to speak online? Oh, <laughs> is it only trying and, uh, or did you do something else for that? Ah, the sound as in the quality of the audio, or the, the speaking. Yeah. But I think it's both like. A microphone is important. Yeah, yeah. But that's n- not the whole thing, right? Yeah. Well, I host a podcast. <laughs> yeah. But like, how did you actually learn to speak online? Was it just practice? You you thought, okay, let me host a podcast. And then you just learned to speak online or you did something else before that? <laughs> I did something that was uh, atrocious. It was incredibly painful. Listening to yourself after a recording, it was one of the <laughs> hardest things. No. <laughs> No, that's goodness like me. terrible. I, I wanted to run away. Yeah, this it's so weird. I need, and people say, yeah, oh, you get used to it, but I'm still working on it. I'm getting used to it. But when you edit your own podcast, you realize you learn to speak in a way that it's different, like varying the tone, taking the time to pause. A lot of us are actually afraid of silence. It's something that's uncomfortable. You are very good at this. Like I noticed that in this episode, like the pauses were really nice. Like as if you practiced. Oh, you did yeah. practice, right? No, I didn't. No, well, I host a podcast. So I'd say yeah. after 55 interviews with people, um, you do find patterns and you're like, in editing, I'm like, I should breathe. You know, sometimes, sometimes that's where it comes from, from realizing how suffocating it is to just keep talking without breathing. Mm-hmm. And from the listener perspective, when you take that pause, you allow them to breathe. Yeah. And it's, okay. it's so much easier to follow the podcast. So I don't know if that works, but. <laughs> okay. We should be wrapping up. So maybe last question I will ask you sure. is, do you have any book recommendations or resource recommendations on the topic of today's interview? Like what kind of book we can read to learn more about business skills? Or would maybe you recommend your podcast for that and you don't need any book for that? Yeah, it's a good question. To be honest, I've been looking for a book like that for a while and kind of dreaming to write one myself because I couldn't find a book on the topic that is 
connected that speaks the language of data professionals. And there's plenty of books on businesses, but you read them, you're like, mm, this is not for me. So no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not aware of any books. I do have a podcast that people that are interested in the topic of getting more impact out of the work they do, they can definitely check it out. It's called Discovering Data. We just launched yesterday a Discord server. So unlike datatalks.club, our community has myself and my podcast assistant at the moment on it, but the server is open. Two people. Yeah, just two, just two. So whoever comes in, don't expect <laughs> a Polish system, but we've been running now for two years and we have so many people that reached out and said, it'd be nice to have a space to hang out and share thoughts post episodes, even before the episodes. And my sort of vision for next year is to use that space to grow, to fill this gap that we all kind of know it's there. It's kind of the metrics, right? You got to take that red pill to follow the right rabbit and see what is there. Because some people, most of us really don't even know that there is a gap. Okay. So to join the Discord server, what do I need to do? Do I need to go to Discovering Data website and then scroll down and then... In the future, yes. The at the moment, ah, since in we're, the future. we are a business of one, it's way okay. more simpler than that. So you go on whatever you listen to your podcasts, you follow Discovering Data, the, the last episode, the one with Steven Shedleski, the guy who worked 10 years with Simon Sinek, and he's an absolute authority on the space of psychological safety, leadership, that kind of stuff. We had a fantastic conversation. I mean, he's like incredible speaker. Absolutely recommend it if you're looking for speakers for your podcast, by the way. And in the show notes of that one, you'll find a link to okay. the Discord server. So definitely join and happy to see you there. Maybe we can bridge the gap together. So much more fun. Yeah. Thanks for the chat. It was amazing. Nice to talk to you. Thanks to you. And anytime. Hit me up on Discord or on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with anyone in, uh, in the audience. Yes, so we'll include on the contact details and you perhaps will also send us a link to your Discord server, which we'll also include in the description. I can definitely do that. <laughs> okay, nice talking to you and have a great weekend. You too. Ciao. Goodbye. 